Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2023, the 1,002nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So some big stories developing over the past 24 hours, and we're going to get started where we left off yesterday and pick up on the House Speaker race, throw some Israel in there, and who knows where else we might end up. Well, I do, but you don't yet. And I'm not just going to tell you about all of it. I can just do it and then you'll know and understand. 
Let's go first to just the news updating us on the state of play. Here is the official story about what's going on in the House speaker race. This is today, obviously, Jordan not moving to third round in House speaker race, supporting McHenry as temporary speaker. GOP Representative Jim Jordan decided Thursday not to move forward with his bid to become the next House speaker and instead supported a proposal to elevate fellow Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry from his post as Speaker Pro Tempore to unelected speaker with the powers of the office for a temporary period of time. So they are going to go outside the rules of the House at this point because they have determined that they cannot reach a consensus on who the speaker will be without joining with Democrats to put somebody from the middle or maybe even Hakeem Jeffries in there. They're trying to just slide one in. They're trying to allow the default solution to become the actual solution. Patrick McHenry currently serves as acting speaker pro tempore. He was not elected to that position. He was moved into that position by being the first name on the list of replacement speakers when the speaker's chair was vacated by Matt Gates's motion to vacate and the corresponding House vote. Now, the acting speaker pro tempore does not have the powers of an elected speaker of the House. They're not part of the presidential line of succession. They are not able to swear in new members and they are not able to move legislation, which means that in his current status as acting speaker pro tempore, Patrick McHenry cannot get those spending bills passed, not the continuing resolution, not the funding for Israel and Ukraine, none of it. The acting speaker pro tempore's duties only include those steps necessary to allow the House to elect a new Speaker of the House. He is literally nothing but a placeholder. So the move that they're trying to make is they are trying to tell everyone that they are not electing a new Speaker of the House. What they are going to do is take the acting Speaker pro tempore and decide that they are just going to change his powers so that his powers would be the same as the Speaker of the House without actually having to elect a Speaker of the House. So our representatives in Congress, our quote unquote elected representatives are figuring out a way that they can work around the rules because they don't like the situation that following the rules has left them in. They are all very, very upset now again at Matt Gates for the motion to vacate in the first place because now they're saying we don't have a speaker. We can't govern. We can't do the job that Americans sent us here to do, which is govern. We're their leaders. <laughs> We're supposed to enact this global agenda and then go home and tell our constituents why that was actually in their best interest, even though none of them believe us. And it's worth taking note of the familiar pattern, which is that two weeks ago when all of this began, we were told that the entire country was going to fall apart. It was a threat to national security. We couldn't do anything without a speaker. We need to have a speaker immediately or everything falls apart. And as time has gone on, that has turned out to be not true at all. There has been no negative consequence whatsoever 
from not having a Speaker of the House. And that, of course, is why they are trying to create negative consequences from not having a Speaker of the House, like telling us you are an anti-Semite unless you approve a Speaker of the House, because without that Speaker of the House, we can't fund assistance in Israel. And so ipso facto, you're an anti-Semite. They tell us they can't fund Ukraine. They tell us that they can't fund the southern border. Well, that's strange because the wall funding was all there. And all the pieces of the wall were all there. And the scheduling of the building of the rest of the wall, that was all in place. All they had to do was nothing and the wall would have been built. And that would have gone a long way to solving our immigration problem at the southern border. But none of that happened. And now we're told that we need a speaker of the house to come in and pass spending bills. Otherwise, we are going to have an invasion at our southern border. And once again, they are trying to leverage Republican voters, America first voters, telling them that if they don't do what they're told, well, then the invasion at the southern border becomes the fault of MAGA and America first. And then, of course, Donald Trump. It makes no sense, but they don't have any leverage. So they use what little they have. You are a bad person for not funding Ukraine, for not funding Israel and for not funding the southern border. All of those problems would be magically fixed, yielding your desired outcome if you just allow us to have a speaker, except they wouldn't be fixed and they wouldn't be fixed in any way that would yield our desired outcome. So that's not a threat. They have exercised zero leverage because they don't have any leverage. And we can just say, oh, gosh, you're going to call us names again. Oh, okay. well, I guess go right ahead and still you get no speaker. Leanne Caldwell of the Washington Post added this on X, formerly Twitter. Jordan is going to announce he will not hold a third vote as speaker now. He will get behind the plan to temporarily empower McHenry until January 3rd. He will remain speaker designee. As speaker designee, Jordan can hold a vote to be speaker at any time. The question is how many Republicans get behind the plan. Does he convince the far right who is opposed to a temporary speaker? Some Republicans are already furious. And of course, she at the Washington Post is doing the bidding of not only the uniparty left, but the uniparty right when required. You recall that the media had no problem getting behind Liz Cheney. They have no problem getting behind any of the uniparty right initiatives when necessary, because they can still use MAGA and America first as the foils. They are still representing the interests of the uniparty left relative to MAGA by supporting the uniparty right when their desires are aligned. The uniparty dynamic explains all of this as long as you understand it in all its forms. They are taking this position of House Speaker designee and pretending that that is a real thing. So Jordan can schedule a vote for him becoming House Speaker at any time. It doesn't seem like there is any point in the next 90 days when Jordan actually could be made Speaker of the House. Establishment Republicans are not going to get on board and Democrats are not going to get on board with Jim Jordan. People voting against Jim Jordan are covering for themselves and they are being protected by the anti-MAGA narrative. 
It is anti-MAGA to be anti-Jim Jordan. Being anti-MAGA is good if you are an establishment cuck rhino, just as it is if you are on the uniparty left. That is where they unite the most. They are parts of the same hate movement. Anti-MAGA is always good for either side of the uniparty. The uniparty left and its voters and supporters will cheer on the uniparty right so long as they are being anti-MAGA. Now, why would anyone be supporting Patrick McHenry's ascent from acting Speaker Pro Tempore to whatever temporary Speaker of the House role they're intending to give him? Well, that allows him to push through these spending packages that then the illegitimate but Democrat-controlled Senate and illegitimate fake president would then be more than happy to pass into law. That cannot happen with his current status. They are probably going to take a couple of days, hope that the American public forgets about this, hold a vote with some major cover story distracting from that vote, or maybe try to pull it off over the weekend, and then they would have what they need without going through the normal process. Democrats and Republicans would combine and we would all be told that this is what was necessary because all those MAGA disruptors, those far right extremists left the House without a Senate and they made it so that the Congress could no longer conduct the people's business. And all of the people who imagine that they are centrists, very serious intellectuals, who really know some things about politics and take all of this very, very seriously, the responsible people, the adults in the room, they would all cheer that on because they agree with that notion. They care primarily about false decorum. They want to be rewarded for their displays of false decorum. They want to say things like, well, we do need a speaker. It is just not responsible to pretend that we don't need a speaker. This is causing chaos. Chaos is bad. But none of that means anything. None of it means anything. Why is chaos bad? Why do we need a speaker? Until you can give me convincing answers to those questions, then you're not making a point. You are repeating something you've heard and hoping that everyone around understands that the thing you said is a truism that everybody knows. And that is how we conduct political conversations in this country. People hear a variety of different ideas on television or on social media or in print media, and then they repeat those ideas as if everybody knows them and these are somehow conclusive, but they themselves haven't thought them through. Ask somebody why they believe the thing they're saying, and they will quite often have no idea why they believe that thing. And I think that all of you will understand I try as best I can to never leave you in that position when it comes to something I have communicated. For the most part, I would guess that if you listen to this show regularly and or follow the episodes attentively, you know why I say the things I say and you know my thought process behind those, which is why I try to work through that whole thought process so that if you share my thought process and you share my conclusions, then you will have all of that and be able to communicate that yourselves. Or you have different thoughts. You have your own thoughts, but you've gone through a similar thought process and can explain your thought process at each stage so that when somebody asks you, well, why do you say that there should be no Speaker of the House? 
you have a response and your response may be mine or it may not. My response is because there's absolutely nothing good that can be done for the American people by putting a Speaker of the House in place. And someone might say, well, we need to keep the government open. And what do you say in response? Why? Why do we need to do that? Everyone keeps appealing to elements of false decorum, things that they have heard, things that when they repeat them, they imagine they sound like informed, serious, responsible people. Because everyone knows that sounding informed, serious, and responsible is how to be taken seriously when discussing politics. And ultimately, that's what everyone wants. Or why would they be weighing in in the first place? They express their political ideas so that other people say, gosh, you know, that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way, Terry. I guess we really do need a Speaker of the House. I mean, yes, what compelling reasoning you have given me. Oh, well, if Joe Biden dies and then Kamala Harris dies, well, <laughs> if we don't have a Speaker of the House elected, then the president will be Patty Murray. Okay, well, yeah, if that tiny minute situation happens and in the meantime, before Patty Murray gets installed, the House can't come to an agreement on who should be chosen as an actual Speaker of the House, thus handing the line of succession over to Patty Murray. Ha, I guess we would be screwed. Gosh, could you imagine the presidency with Patty Murray in there instead of Joe Biden? It would be so much worse. Whereas if we had a Republican speaker in there and then Joe Biden died and Kamala Harris died, well, we'd have a Republican president and that would be the best thing in the world. No matter who it was, a little R next to their name, gosh, we would get so much done. What a better world we would have. What kind of thought process is that? That is a thought process that people who think they know things about politics take seriously. That is not a serious thought process. And we can even accept that in some strange circumstance, that is a plausible thing that could actually happen in the world. But what is that? A one in 10,000 chance, a one in 100,000 chance. And that particular extraordinarily unlikely event is meant to create a leverage point on why you must now back down from your demands relative to how this speaker process will play out because of that unlikely potential eventuality. You now need to change your position on speaker. Have you been convinced if that sort of thinking convinces you, you need to stop thinking about politics. Just focus on something else. I talked with my good pal Burning Bright on Badlands Story Hour the other night about what I referred to as the collegization of Americans, how we all get indoctrinated into this college oriented thought process, whether or not we actually went to college. When people begin engaging this thought process on a regular basis and a widespread basis, it seems to just become how people think. And so what we end up in are a lot of these arguments where someone presents something that is plausible, but extraordinarily unlikely. And because of the possibility of that, now we have to change or a semantic argument is made where they say this is like this and this and this. You can't say that what I just said isn't true. And you're like, OK, well, in terms of semantics, what you said, I guess, is technically true in some sense. And they're like, well, yeah, that means that you have to go along with me now. 
And it's like, no, Kami, no, I don't. You played a semantic game and you have, gosh, won that semantic game. Gosh, you nailed me. You really hammered that semantic argument just perfectly. You have won the game of semantics. Does that mean I have to agree with you or go along with what you're saying? No, actually, no, not at all. I do not have a responsibility to agree with you now that you have presented semantics. You have defined your terms and showed me that how within your terms, you are right. Gosh, what an accomplishment. But here's the thing. Still don't agree with you. And we really do have to reach a point of comfort with these thought processes. You have given me a plausible circumstance. You have given me a semantic argument. You have told me that everybody knows what must be done. You have told me that it is irresponsible to maintain my position. Well, here's the thing. I don't care at all about any of those things. You're not right about any of them. But if you were right about all of them, I still don't care because those aren't the crucial focal points on which I nor any other responsible decision maker informed about this process and about the context of this particular decision would ever change my mind. And again, this is the common process. This is what we see. Ron supporters will pull out a video of something that Donald Trump said, and they'll say, see, Donald Trump was responsible for all the lockdowns are responsible for this are responsible for that. And then they say, see, he said this, he did this. This is something you care about. Therefore you have to stop supporting Trump. And it's like, no, you retard. Why would I have to stop supporting Trump just because of you being right about something he said? Yeah. I'm not denying that he said that thing and I'm not supporting that thing he said. But none of that means I need to pretend that Donald Trump is still not the right and only solution for the problem facing us. These people have no understanding of logic or reasoning at all. They just present a fact and say, see, now you have to take the same position I'm taking. No, no, I don't. Not at all. I can just simply say no and laugh at people who think that they have changed my mind on the thing that they think is important. I don't think that thing is important. Therefore, you haven't changed my mind. Now, I've made this point on this podcast and elsewhere over the course of the past couple weeks, but Senator Mike Lee of Utah posted this this morning on X, formerly Twitter. He said House Uniparty GOP members insisted last week that a, quote, speakerless House was a national crisis. But now they're willing to experiment with unprecedented long term pro tem powers when asked to vote for a more conservative speaker. Stunning hypocrisy. Now, this is Mike Lee, Republican senator of Utah, calling out the House Uniparty GOP. That is a Republican senator pointing out the Uniparty to everyone. I am continually told by writers for the National Review and the Federalist and the Blaze and Town Hall and other outlets that the Uniparty is a conspiracy theory. David Harsanyi, formerly of National Review, I believe now at the Federalist, COVID superfan, by the way, straight up responded to me couple weeks ago, 
telling me that the Uniparty was a conspiracy theory. Well, I guess that Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah has fallen for that conspiracy theory as well. But of course, it's not a conspiracy theory, and you can see the Uniparty at work in everything that is happening. It is wonderful now that people are beginning to talk about it. They have to talk about it. The Uniparty is real. They did not want Speaker Jim Jordan, and we can have the conversations about that. We talked about it a bunch yesterday. The normie point of view is that they didn't want MAGA in there. I'm not certain that Jim Jordan would have been a MAGA Speaker of the House anyway. He probably also would have confronted a lot of difficult decisions and may have been permanently forced to destroy his own reputation. So it's probably not a good thing for Jim Jordan. If you are a fan of Jim Jordan, you should be happy with the results of this. But we were told that no speaker was a huge crisis. It turns out that it's not a crisis at all. And as Mike Lee points out, even the Uniparty members of the House now have backed off that position and are accepting something else. They are hoping that they can get this McHenry option pushed through so that he has the power of the speaker. All of these people making the argument that the Constitution says the House must choose a speaker. And that means that a speaker must be chosen immediately and that until the House chooses one, apparently we, by saying no speaker, are in violation of the intent and purpose of the Constitution. It took them almost no time to completely reverse their position on that. Their principled constitutional position just completely switched around. And why? Because they need funding for other countries. Their commitment to funding Israel and Ukraine on behalf of the global regime is greater than their commitment to their ostensible constitutional principles. Matt Gates paused briefly in the halls of Congress this morning to answer a reported question. And thinking of Matt Gates as the occasional chaos agent he is, he is executing the narrative role called for perfectly. But do you think that I, I think that I'm against speaker light. I'm against Bud Light. I believe it is a constitutional desecration to not elect a speaker of the House. We need to stay here until we elect a speaker. And if someone can't get the votes, we need to go on to the next person. But but twisting and torturing the Constitution to empower a temporary speaker is having a speaker light that is not constitutionally contemplated is deeply infirm. And I will do everything possible to stop it. And naturally, we are going to get the argument that Jim Jordan endorses this idea. So if you were just supporting Jim Jordan, shouldn't you be supporting whatever Jim Jordan says that the people supporting him should support? This is their twisted logic always. It's always connected to what somebody else thinks or what somebody else wants. It's never people representing their own principles, which is one of the most annoying things about our culture and our politics right now. But Matt Gates is not falling prey to that particular problem. He is standing up for the same principles. He is saying quite clearly, they are trying to twist and manipulate the constitutional understanding of the role of Speaker of the House so that they can take this acting Speaker pro tempore and make him just like a Speaker of the House without actually voting for a Speaker of the House. Why? 
so that they can continue to govern. What does govern mean? Commit more Americans to a lifetime of indentured servitude so that the global regime and its bankers can continue creating fiat money out of nothing in order to fund foreign wars that the American people don't approve of. They are trying to commit us to debt and indentured servitude to fund wars we don't want fought in the first place. If they want to elect a speaker, illegitimate though they all are, go right ahead, combine Republicans and Democrats and choose whoever you want. Do your worst. Put McCarthy back in? No, that's not bad enough. Put Hakeem Jeffries in? Oh, I don't know. It's pretty bad. I don't know if it's bad enough. Put Liz Cheney in? Yes, that sounds just right. And I can hear your heads exploding. I get it. Liz Cheney is terrible, but it would be hilarious and it would wake a whole lot of people up. And come on, guys, that really is our goal. Let's stop freaking out about the day-to-day -day political stuff. These people are not our rulers. They're all there illegitimately. We need to be clown them in every way imaginable. We do not need Washington, D.C. to rule over us. We should oppose it at all costs. We do not want the imperial capital of the United States. We do not need the pomp and circumstance. This country was specifically set up so that it would not fall victim to the problems of royalty. And so instead, we have created this quasi-royalty. It's kind of like how atheists and secularists want to avoid the problems of religion and then go and create a religion of scientism or humanism or transhumanism. And they simply move their faith somewhere else, something bound to the world. And they say, this isn't religion, despite all of my faith-based beliefs. We don't need to replace royalty with a system that we then push toward being just like royalty. We pretend our president is the ultimate ruler and authority over what we are allowed to do in our lives. And by the way, that understanding is part of what drives people so insane when a president from the other side wins. Now, I don't want any Democrat president. I don't want any terrible Republican president either. I think that the political parties should be gone and then we don't have to talk about that anymore. But the point is, this is not supposed to be a monarchy. We don't need to look at these people in quote unquote power and then supplicate ourselves before them, imagining that they have full control over our lives. It does not matter who the speaker is for the next year. We do not have legitimate elections. The investigations not only aren't producing anything but public disclosure of things already investigated, they're also not investigations because all of those things have been investigated. Where are the subpoenas? They're not anywhere. Have the hearings produced anything important? No, they sure haven't. We talked about the impeachment inquiry hearing. There were no legitimate witnesses at that hearing. Jonathan Turley, the law professor, maybe a nice guy, maybe a smart guy, maybe a good and faithful American who just happens to be clueless about a whole bunch of things. He comes in to talk on behalf of those going after the Biden family about their corruption. Why would that be the case? Why wasn't Garrett Ziegler in there who actually knows everything there is to know 
about what's on that laptop and about Biden family corruption. And he can read chapter and verse. That dude's got a computer brain and has essentially the entire Marco Polo report, 600 plus pages long in his head. And he can cite pages without the book even being around. That's how much he knows the material. But instead, the House impeachment inquiry hearing features guys that are barely familiar with it and think that the news coming out in the mainstream is actually current to the state of knowledge about the Hunter Biden laptop. Let's at least be honest with ourselves about what's going on here. Now, all of that could be a show, and I'm just fine with that interpretation, but they're not doing anything and they weren't going to do anything. Impeaching Joe Biden is absolutely meaningless because he's not a legitimate president in the first place. I've been saying for three years that would never happen. It's not the proper way to remove him. That has not changed once. There is no indication that it will change over the next year. It is a narrative element that does not represent a part of reality. The impeachment inquiry for all intents and purposes simply is not real. So what are we scared of with a potential Hakeem Jeffries speakership? Oh, they're going to do all the bad things that they were already doing with the Republicans helping them to do it. Oh, gosh, that's scary. We know that the economy is going to be collapsing in some sense either way. And I don't mean it's going to fully collapse and that you will be devastated and out on the streets. I mean, there are some tough times ahead. And a lot of that will be in the public narrative. A lot of that will be happening to people higher up in the income bracket, the people who have not yet felt any of this. We are going to hear about the collapse of the currency, the move away from the US dollar, which we should interpret as the collapse of the regime fiat currency. But whether in the actual sense or the narrative sense, there are a lot of things that are going to fall right on the head of someone like Hakeem Jeffries if he takes over that role or Liz Cheney or anyone else. I'm just presenting possibilities. None of these possibilities should be scary, which doesn't mean that there is no downside. It's just that none of that downside outweighs the leverage that we have now and the good of this current situation. This is as limited as government can possibly be. Are you a limited government conservative or not? And I get the argument. Well, yes, I am a limited government conservative, but that doesn't mean I want no government at all. I want a functioning government. Okay, I get it. You're a very serious person. You are one of the adults in the room. But the thing is, most of them aren't legitimate. So there's no way to be one of the serious adults in the room, a very serious limited government conservative, while also supporting the idea that a bunch of illegitimately seated members of Congress are going to produce a legitimate speaker of the House so that they can continue to govern in a way that allows for unlimited government while you sit back and pat yourself on the back for your seriousness for being the adult in the room and being a proponent of limited government in theory, just not in practice. And this is the sort of thinking that has gotten us into this situation. This is the establishment conservative mind. And in as much as you still represent that mindset in your thinking, do your best to remove that. We do not have to play into the framing 
of the Uniparty, of the global regime, of this controlled opposition dynamic that is set up for us. We do not need to judge what we want and what we should do based on whether or not it's going to own the libs or make them cry liberal tears. Oh, we're going to get our Daily Wire mug and drink these liberals tears. Oh, I'm a powerful dragon slayer. I slayed those liberal dragons and now I will drink their tears. Oh, I am the great winner. Or one of those scared, timid, little dorky establishment Republicans who's like, well, we have power right now. And if we give up our power, then the liberals are going to get everything they want. As if it's so much better to have people with little R's next to their names give liberals everything they want, because that is what we have had for decade after decade after decade. Do you want the problem solved or do you want to be taken seriously by very serious adults in the room? I personally have been around all sorts of very serious adults and 99% of them don't know what the hell they're talking about, including when it is regarding their own individual expertise. And most people would admit, yeah, I'm just winging it. Now, after the House went into recess yesterday, we began getting news and video of a pretty sizable protest being held at and around the Capitol. And this was organized in advance by apparently pretty serious organizers who had pretty serious goals. They've been protesting throughout the week, but yesterday was the big day. USA Today reported on this this morning, more than 300 arrested in U.S. House protest calling for Israel-Hamas ceasefire. U.S. Capitol Police said Thursday that they arrested more than 300 protesters who held a demonstration inside a U.S. House office building in Washington, D.C. over the Israel-Hamas war. Protesters with Jewish Voices for Peace and If Not Now were detained on Capitol Hill while calling for a ceasefire in Gaza a narrow strip of land bordering Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea. Police reported that the protests broke out at the Cannon House office building just before 1.40 p.m. Wednesday and shut down roads outside the building due to the demonstration. Video shows demonstrators wearing black t-shirts reading, Jews say ceasefire now, in white lettering, shouting ceasefire now. Other footage shows the group sitting on the cannon rotunda floor, clapping in unison. Now, were they obstructing official proceedings? Were they trespassing on Capitol grounds? You could probably find them guilty of all the things that the J6 protesters have been pursued for. And that is the first and most obvious point. That is the surface level interpretation in the normosphere. And that, of course, is a relevant hypocrisy worth bringing up and a worthwhile example and illustration of our two-tiered justice system. So it is absolutely good that that story is getting out and that people are understanding that. But we don't need to get tied up thinking that that is the only important element of this story. So the second level is, who is this protest group? Well, they are a progressive anti-Zionist group. Now, anti-Zionism is its own thing separate from progressivism. There is nothing progressive about anti-Zionism. There is nothing anti-Zionist about progressivism. Progressive groups support the global regime. The global regime is almost exclusively 
Zionist. They support Israel's statehood insofar as Israel is the globalist proxy state that they set up in the aftermath of World War II. It is not the biblical Israel that we are talking about. We are not talking about God's chosen people on God's land. We are talking about a regime proxy state whose borders were drawn in the aftermath of World War II. It is very similar in that sense to Ukraine. There is also a very strong anti-Zionist movement among conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, who take their faith very seriously and believe as a matter of faith that a Jewish state should not ever be established. But Jewish voices for peace are not those people. These are progressive activists engaged in supporting the same cause. Now, is their primary motivation the anti-Zionist movement or is their primary motivation the progressive movement and they are co-opting anti-Zionism as a part of their progressive endeavor? That is an important but different discussion. The issue yesterday is that these progressive anti-Zionists, Jewish Voices for Peace, are indistinguishable from the BLM Antifa style protesters that were part of that group. Now, is the BLM Antifa thing co-opting this anti-Zionist cause? Maybe they are. But if the protesters are indistinguishable in their ideology, then it makes sense toward biasing our understanding that these people are first and foremost organized activists working on behalf of the regime, same as BLM Antifa was in 2020, same as they've always been. But here's the important aspect. The global regime is, as I said, almost exclusively Zionist. You can come down wherever you like on Zionism, but that is what they are and what they represent. In fact, here is a prominent member of the global regime talking about his own Zionism, despite the fact that he is not a Jew this inextricable tie between culture, religion, mm -hmm. ethnicity that most people don't fully understand that is unique and um, how can I say it? Um, so uh, strong uh, with Jews worldwide. There is a there is a I mean, you know, I used to say Early on when I was a kid, I'd say, when I was a young senator, I'd say, if I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. That's Joe Biden back when he was running to be Barack Obama's vice president. Here's more. Were I a Jew, I would be a Zionist. And my father pointed out to me, I did not need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. For I am. Israel is essential to the security of Jews worldwide. So I apologize for the low volume there, but that is Joe Biden saying in a speech before a Jewish group that he is not a Jew, but he is a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Israel, the state of Israel, as set up by the global regime in the aftermath of World War II, is necessary for the defense of Jews worldwide. And again, you can maintain any position on Zionism you like. I am not here to tell you what to believe about Zionism. Maybe you think it is very important that that state of Israel as set up is necessary because otherwise there would immediately be another Holocaust as supporters of Zionism claim. Or maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you believe 
as many Orthodox Jews believe that there should not be an Israeli state at all, and that it is antithetical to what their religious beliefs call for. But understanding the Zionist project and its relation to and affiliation with the global regime, which is not to say that the global regime are the Jews. It's just to say that the ideology of that global regime happens to include Zionism, just like it happens to include a whole bunch of other beliefs and belief systems. The point is that they're inextricably linked. And so if their project is in some way Zionism, then what is the threat? It's anti-Zionism. It's not BLM Antifa. And it's not even really supporters of Hamas or Hamas itself, which they have some hand in creating and some hand in controlling. That is the controlled opposition dynamic that has been set up as we discussed yesterday. They conflate the state of Israel with the Israeli people and the Jewish people and Jewish people worldwide, even though many or most of them have never even been to Israel. And then they conflate Palestine and Hamas, and they set up their controlled opposition dynamic reliant on those conflations. That controlled opposition dynamic gives them an enemy and then forces everyone to choose. Are you on the side of the enemy or are you our ally? And that is exactly what we've seen throughout the woke movement over the last 10 years. We've seen it with every racial movement. We've seen it with every gender movement. There is no reason why this should be considered different just because the people creating our cultural conversations over so many years tell us that it's different. It's not. It's identity politics. And if you don't go along with the prescribed narratives, they will say that it's because you hate people. It makes no sense. It is exactly the same as saying that you are racist if you don't support the teaching of critical race theory. That claim is rejected by virtually everyone in the Republican Party. It doesn't matter if you're MAGA and America first or a uniparty right conservative. Almost everyone understands that opposing critical race theory does not mean that you hate black people. And there is no reason why it should be any different when it comes to Zionism. You can oppose Zionist ideology. You can even oppose the ideology of Judaism without hating Jews. Everybody who is religious disagrees in their beliefs in important ways with everyone of every other religion. It is not a matter of hate to have those disagreements about beliefs or ideologies. And it is certainly not a matter of class-based hate that then translates for the hatred of individuals. And one of the real key things here to notice is that as this entire protest has been obscured because of the uh, extreme leftist involvement, the BLM Antifa style involvement, the progressiveness of these protesters, and then the narrative related to January 6th, because of all that stuff that everybody has become focused on, everyone misses the fact that there are actually Jews who don't support the state of Israel, who actually want to see the state of Israel be dissolved because they don't believe that a Jewish state should exist in the first place. And it's not because they want to see all Jews wiped out, which is how it's framed by Zionists. 
it would seem like after years and years of learning these lessons over and over and over and over again, how we don't take an ideological disagreement and translate that to identity based hatred that people might not fall victim to these same arguments, these same framings, these same constructs again and again and again. But they do when it comes to this one, because they know what the cultural and social blowback will be. They know what they might be subjected to in terms of emotional and reputational damage if they don't say the right things. We need to get past that because we actually want to figure these things out. It doesn't mean that we have to be experts and be right about everything right up front. It means we have to discuss these issues openly and listen to what people on the other side might say. I would love to hear a great discussion between some real serious Zionists and some real serious Jewish Orthodox anti-Zionists. But those aren't the sorts of debates our culture embraces, generally speaking, because one of those positions is termed anti-Semitic. You can't even bring it up without being called anti-Semitic. And I could be called anti-Semitic for saying these things just for trying to illustrate what the conversation is about. But let's now skip past that. The point is that all of the surrounding issues and all of the external context for those events yesterday at the Capitol are being covered in a way that obscures the fact that there are actually Jews protesting against Zionism. And if you're the regime, this is an excellent way. The infiltration of BLM Antifa, the fact that they organized it, the fact that these are progressive anti-Zionists, all of that will be conflated. And that will be what the general public thinks of the anti-Zionist movement. Oh, anti-Zionists are just crazy pink haired liberals. Whereas the Zionists are more in line with people we know to be our conservative allies like Ben Shapiro and Ron DeSantis and Fox News and Town Hall and blah, blah, blah. All of the conservative media influencers, so many of the Republican politicians, they are all Zionists. And so when they are talking about the events of yesterday, all of that anti-Zionism thing gets lumped in with the BLM Antifa progressive nonsense. And now that movement simply disappears. The actual threat to Zionism being anti-Zionism, the anti-Zionism part just gets conflated with the extreme BLM Antifa style progressivism. And now that is the enemy problem solved. Pretty clever, isn't it? It's kind of similar to the way that they talk about Republicans who want to, for instance, abolish the FBI, how it's being framed as, oh, now it's the Republicans who want to defund the police. They are destroying the idea by associating it with people who conservatives find for good reasons to be totally distasteful. Now, we discussed how the House is unable to pass spending measures to help our friends in Israel as they were helping our friends in Ukraine. And they have figured out a workaround for that, as you might imagine. This is from today in Axios. Scoop, U.S. to send Israel artillery shells initially designated for Ukraine. 
the Pentagon plans to send Israel tens of thousands of 155 millimeter artillery shells that had been designated for Ukraine from U.S. emergency stocks several months ago. Three Israeli officials with knowledge of the situation tell Axios. The Israel Defense Forces and the Israeli Ministry of Defense told their U.S. counterparts they urgently need artillery shells to prepare for a ground invasion in Gaza and a potential escalation of the war by Hezbollah along the Israel-Lebanon border, Israeli officials say. U.S. officials have suggested that diverting the shells from Ukraine to Israel would have no immediate impact on Ukraine's ability to fight against Russian troops. Isn't that great? So taking the weapons away from Ukraine doesn't hurt Ukraine, but it does help Israel. What spectacular symmetry if it didn't have this aspect of not disappearing in one place and just simply appearing in another place. Well, then people who went all in to support Ukraine might be like, hey, wait, why are you letting the Ukraine thing go? I mean, I know that Israel is very, very important, but why are you letting the Ukraine thing go? I thought that Putin was going to take over all of Europe and then the world and present a nuclear threat to everyone unless we protected Ukraine's sovereign borders. And now you're just saying that all of that ammunition we sent over to Ukraine can just be sent somewhere else and it's not even going to affect Putin's brutal invasion? Like, did we, did we already lose that war? Yes, Kami. Yes. It's not what you're being told at all. Isn't that strange? But it's unclear whether U.S. military supplies to Ukraine could be stretched if the Israel-Hamas war becomes a broader regional conflict. So if the entire Middle East becomes engulfed in flames as the members of the regime and the warmongers in the uniparty right and uniparty left media want it to, well, then, you know, what we've sent to Ukraine, that might not be enough. So we would need a Speaker of the House so that we could then deplete the United States stocks of ammunition and weapons, etc., and money, of course, and give all that to Israel. The United States might not actually be able to come to our ally Israel's defense in the Middle East if this entire region becomes engulfed in flames. Wait, what? Oh, oh, the United States isn't actually strong enough to defend these allies around the world anymore. And everyone kind of knows it now. I wonder if Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and their allies around the world realize that the United States doesn't actually have the ability to bail out any of these countries. And maybe they saw an example of that with what happened in Ukraine. Maybe the entire world saw that example. And maybe they actually understand that there's no way Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. Maybe that's why Vladimir Putin doesn't even bother talking to him. Are we really supposed to just keep pretending that these other world leaders are afraid of, are intimidated by Joe Biden or the might of the United States military under the control of Joe Biden? And of course they aren't. You might think that they might be afraid of the U.S. military under the control of someone else. But who is that someone else? Is it Barack Obama? Is it just others supporting the global regime efforts vis-a-vis -vis the United States military? Or is none of that happening at all? It doesn't sound like the United States is going to have 
any ability to defend our ally Israel if this becomes a more widespread conflict. That is what we are being told in very light terms by Axios. It's unclear whether U.S. military supplies to Ukraine could be stretched if the Israel-Hamas war becomes a broader regional conflict. Zoom in. Since Hamas's attack on Israel ignited the war on October 7th, the Israeli military has significantly increased its use of artillery, both in Gaza and in skirmishes with Hezbollah on the Lebanon border. I wonder if they have restocked their supplies of anti-paragliding go-kart munitions. Axios says, flashback. Starting in early 2023, the U.S. began drawing down 155 millimeter artillery shells from its considerable ammunition stockpiles in Israel to send them to Ukraine. At the time, the Israeli military told then Prime Minister Yair Lapid and then Minister of Defense Benny Gantz that there was no immediate scenario in which Israel would need an emergency supply of shells. Wow. They missed on the intelligence about those paragliding go-karts coming in to attack the desert rave. And they also missed the need for all of this ammunition. The Israeli military told then Prime Minister Lapid and then Minister of Defense Gantz that there was no immediate scenario where they would need the emergency supply of shells. Well, now Benny Gantz is the person who is part of Benjamin Netanyahu's emergency government that was formed last week. Oh, it's insane how it all comes together, isn't it? That all changed on October 7th, Israeli officials said. Between the lines, the ammunition that had been designated for Ukraine was part of a U.S. weapons stockpile that is kept in Israel as part of an agreement between the countries. Isn't that great? We just have military stockpiles lying around in Israel. So strange. Could you imagine if we had other countries, military supplies stored in our country? Under what scenario would we allow that or think that that is the right sort of thing? But don't worry, according to Axios, only U.S. military personnel have access to the weapon storage sites. But according to the agreement between the countries, Israel can use the ammunition in a war scenario in short order. With U.S. approval, Israel was granted access to the ammunition during its war with Lebanon in 2006 and also during the 2014 Gaza conflict. So we have ammunition stored over there that the Israelis are not allowed to use except if they need them and then they are allowed to use them. But wait, there's more. After the Hamas attack on October 7th, the IDF conducted an initial assessment of its urgent weapons needs and gave it to the Pentagon. One of the requests was to get tens of thousands of 155 millimeter artillery shells back to fill the depleted U.S. emergency stocks in Israel in case the Israeli military needed to use the shells on short notice. The Israeli officials said the U.S. agreed and will be sending the artillery shells to Israel in the coming weeks. So they had our ammunition. We moved our ammunition from Israel to Ukraine, and now we are moving it back because the Israelis submitted their urgent weapons needs and we have already agreed to fulfill them. 
Now, anyone who was paying attention to the Russia-Ukraine conflict right from the beginning would know that one of the major voices in that conversation in trying to understand exactly what was happening at that time was Professor John Mearsheim. And he has recently done an interview with Judge Napolitano discussing this Israel situation. And here is some of what he said. This is a couple of minutes long. Before we go, just to go back to where we started, I mean, how does that end? Does Gaza get decimated into a desert? Uh, does Hamas win by staying alive and in control and underground? Uh, does Bibi Netanyahu go to jail over this? Well, I think this is very hard to predict because a lot depends on whether the Israelis go into Gaza with ground forces. There's been a lot of talk about them going into Gaza and tearing the place apart, finding Hamas and eradicating Hamas. But I think the Israelis, this is just a guess, but I think the Israelis have come to realize that this is not a smart idea, that going into Gaza and trying to eliminate uh, uh, Hamas will cause more trouble uh, than it's worth. And then at the end, even if you were to eradicate Hamas, you'll just get a new radicalized group in its place. You're not going to solve the problem with military force. This is a political problem. So one question is, do they go in or do they not go in? But they're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because if they don't go in, Hamas lives to fight another day for sure. And they're well armed and they're going to continue to cause problems. Uh, then if they don't go in, they bomb uh, Gaza. But this is a total disaster, not only because from a human point of view, from a human rights point of view, just seeing civilians killed is an absolutely horrible thing, but also it does no good strategically. It doesn't solve the problem. It just enrages people inside the Palestinian world, inside the Arab world, and it even loses support over time for Israel in the West. So bombing is no solution either. So the Israelis are really between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I don't know what they do to fix the problem. And this gets back to my earlier point that the solution to this was a two-state solution. Right. I have to ask you this because you're so well-regarded internationally. What would you do if Bibi Netanyahu calls you up and says, Professor Mearsheimer, give me your guidance? Well, I I've thought about that question. I would tell him to back off uh, from the bombing as soon as possible uh, and uh, not go further down that road. And I would advise not to go into uh, Gaza. Uh, and I would tell him that what he ought to do and what his colleagues ought to do is reverse gear and uh, or reverse direction and move towards a two-state solution. But he's never going to accept that. And he heads up a governing coalition that includes a number of people who are much further to the right than he is. Right. And if you look at the demographics in Israel over time, right? Uh, this is a country that's going to get more and more hawkish and more and more anti-Palestinian over time. That coupled with the present events makes it almost impossible to see how you get a two-state solution. So I think I could give him that advice. And even if he were willing to listen to me, which he wouldn't be, he couldn't execute it because the politics inside Israel no longer facilitate a two-state solution. That train has left the station. 
So as with the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the view that we're getting from the mainstream media and from influencers and media figures on both sides, the uniparty right and the uniparty left, is not the full story. And promoting war and saying, oh, we got to go eliminate those terrorists is not a full and complete answer, nor a wise response to what we have been shown to this point. And finally, let's return to just the news. This is today. Former Trump attorney Sidney Powell reaches plea deal in Georgia 2020 election case. Attorney Sidney Powell reached a plea deal Thursday with Fulton County prosecutors in the Georgia 2020 election case in which former President Donald Trump and 18 others were indicted in August for allegedly trying to overturn the results in Trump's favor. She pleaded guilty to reduced charges the day before the jury was set to be selected in her trial, according to the Associated Press. Under the deal, Powell will receive six years probation and be forced to pay a $6,000 fine in addition to $2,700 in restitution to the state, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Powell also agreed to testify truthfully in the case, and she wrote an apology letter to the citizens of the state. Powell was originally charged with racketeering and six other counts related to the 2020 election. A judge last month ruled that Powell and former Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbrough would have their trial scheduled for later this month after they requested a speedy trial, unlike the other co-defendants. Now, as you might imagine, those headlines went around pretty quickly. Sidney Powell pleads guilty to conspiring with Donald Trump to overturn the results of a free and fair election. She participated in an insurrection and now she has to pay. She has finally admitted her guilt and that means Donald Trump is guilty. They all tried to overturn the safest and most secure election of all time. Of course, that's crap. And the election was absolutely stolen, including in Georgia. And all of the evidence is there. Do not fall victim to this stupidity and nonsense. Nothing about technicalities of legal cases, nothing about guilty pleas to reduce charges, changes anything about the underlying facts. And the underlying facts are there's no way in hell Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes and the certification of fraudulent elections do not then make those elections unaffected by fraud. This does not mean the process ends. This does not mean we will never see justice. It doesn't even mean that Sidney Powell admitted guilt to what she was initially accused of. These are reduced charges. Technofog, in his analysis of this on X, formerly Twitter, today wrote, Fulton County prosecutors drop all seven felony charges against Sidney Powell in exchange for a misdemeanor plea. They overcharged and they knew it. Read the pleadings. The Fulton County DA lied to the court repeatedly about the law. They hid exculpatory evidence from the grand jury, violating the prosecutor's oath to do justice. And now the felonies vanish on the eve of trial. Totally unjust prosecution. So does that sound like Sidney Powell just admitted to guilt, which is the first domino falling in this massive RICO case against Donald Trump? No, of course it doesn't. This news actually broke when I was on Badlands Daily this morning with my pal Ash in America. 
And upon hearing this news, not even the details, the first thing I said was, I imagine this will be repealed on Brady grounds and noted that in the foreword of Sidney Powell's book, License to Lie, the Brady rule is discussed directly. The foreword of her book is written by a man named Alex Kaczynski. He is the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And he writes this in the foreword. And why do prosecutors engage in misconduct? The Center for Prosecutor Integrity provides an answer. Prosecutors are subjected to a variety of powerful incentives that serve to reward zealous advocacy. The gratitude of victims, favorable media coverage, career promotions, appointment to judgeships, and the allure of high political office. This is Kaczynski writing now. Much of this behavior is illustrated in the pages of this book and requires no elaboration. However, two items on the Center for Prosecutor Integrity's list merit a few additional words as their significance may not be immediately apparent to readers unfamiliar with the criminal justice process. The first is the growing practice of overcharging, particularly with crimes of dubious validity. One of the bedrock principles of our criminal law is that citizens are entitled to fair notice of what is criminal and what is legal. People can then avoid prosecution by engaging in lawful activities. The right to do what the law does not prohibit without fear of harassment or punishment is one of the hallmarks of a free society. One of the fundamental responsibilities of a prosecutor is to charge defendants only with conduct that is clearly criminal. And yet time and again, in these high-profile prosecutions, the United States Department of Justice charged multiple defendants with crimes that simply weren't crimes. In addition to the so-called crime that destroyed Arthur Anderson, and he's referring to the Enron case, the Supreme Court held in rapid succession that the government had obtained convictions in three other cases where the charged conduct wasn't criminal. Nevertheless, the government insisted and the judges supinely agreed that the defendants must start serving their time behind bars, even as their challenges to the convictions upon these alleged violations were being considered on appeal. So the first problem he notes is the overcharging, which is what Technofog just said happened in this Sydney Powell case. Now, for those of you who don't know, Technofog is a fairly prominent uh, lawyer and analyst who writes for some pretty big publications. He's kind of a go-to for analysis on issues like this. Alex Kaczynski in License to Lie goes on. Another important responsibility of prosecutors is to disclose to the defense any exculpatory information of which the government is aware. The Supreme Court announced this as a constitutional requirement in the 1963 case of Brady versus Maryland, and it has confirmed its underlying principles many times since. It may not be obvious to the lay reader why the government must provide the defendant with evidence that may undermine the prosecution, so it's worth a brief explanation. Most fundamental is the fact that the government is not an ordinary litigant whose interest lies in winning at all costs. Rather, the government's legitimate interest lies in convicting only those defendants who are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
If the government has evidence that casts doubt on the defendant's guilt, it has every interest in producing that evidence for the jury to consider in reaching its decision. As the Supreme Court noted in Brady, an inscription on the walls of the Department of Justice states the proposition candidly for the federal domain. The United States wins its point whenever justice is done, its citizens in the courts. Beyond this theoretical justification are important practical reasons for the Brady rule. Government agents usually have unimpeded and exclusive access to the crime scene so they can easily remove and conceal evidence that might contradict the prosecution's case. Police also generally talk to witnesses first and can pressure them to change their story to confirm to the prosecution's theory of the case. Prosecutors can and often do threaten to charge witnesses as accomplices or co-conspirators if they testify favorably to the defense. As a result, potential exculpatory witnesses invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid getting themselves into trouble. The government has virtually unhampered control over forensic evidence, as well as its analysis and presentation by experts. Too often, these experts turn out to be sloppy or dishonest. Many defendants have spent long years behind bars because of incompetent or corrupt forensic scientists employed by law enforcement. Many of those convictions could have been avoided if the jury had been shown the evidence casting doubt on the validity of the expert reports. So the idea here is that the state, the government, in its role as prosecutor, has a responsibility to give the defendant any exculpatory information they might have, because the government's purpose is to see to it that justice is done under the law, not that they have a flawless record in convicting people if those people should not be convicted because the faith in the legal system and the rule of law is diminished if they are convicting people who should not be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt based on all of the evidence. If they prevent all of that evidence from being seen by the jury, then they are creating an unjust advantage for themselves and an unjust disadvantage for normal citizens out there who might be accused of something they didn't do. And so we have both of these coming into play in this Sidney Powell situation, not only the overcharging, but also the Brady stuff. And Technofog mentions both of those in those two tweets. That's from the foreword of Sidney Powell's book. What are the chances that these two key issues mentioned in the foreword of License to Lie would be the key components in this situation where Sidney Powell is pleading guilty to reduced charges. All of the felonies went away and she pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. And it is being portrayed by the media as her admitting guilt as if the entire Trump conspiracy is true and they're all going down. That is the headline and the reaction from the normosphere. And it in no way represents what actually happened here. Jonathan Turley, the professor and legal analyst, as I mentioned earlier, wrote the plea of Sidney Powell to six misdemeanors will allow her to avoid jail and only face minor fines. What she did not plead guilty to was the racketeering conspiracy. That was the most serious charge and tied in former President Donald Trump. She agreed to testify truthfully. 
She is no longer facing a threat of prosecution and can now testify freely. That could make her a dangerous witness for both sides. So all of the people out there saying that Sidney Powell flipped and will now testify against Donald Trump and the rest of them are just making that up. That is just their interpretation. Well, she has agreed to testify as part of her plea deal. Therefore, she is testifying on behalf of the prosecution. Therefore, she is going to be testifying against all of these defendants. And that will be damning testimony because, of course, she knows what happened. She knows all of the gritty details of the non-crimes that no one committed. It's actually crazy the way people interpret this stuff. Sidney Powell must have damning information on all of these people. She's going to be the one whose testimony proves that they all actually did these crimes, but they didn't do any crimes. And what they're accused of aren't crimes. They're going to be just fine. They conspired to overturn an election that was fraudulent. You would have to believe that the election wasn't fraudulent, that all of that was done above board when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't to even worry about any of that stuff. But as we covered back in August, the indictments are nonsense in the first place. In full, Sidney Powell pleading guilty to things that she will very likely have cleared from her record later doesn't mean anything. Sidney Powell testifying doesn't mean anything. There's no underlying crime. There's no evidence of an underlying crime. And the fact is, the election was stolen in Georgia. This is not the sort of thing that everyone needs to freak out about. The headline is an attempt to make everyone think the same thing. The thing that will scare us and the thing that will empower all the communists out there who want to be sure that the world never understands that our elections are stolen. But that's not what's happening here. And as I said on Badlands Daily this morning, immediately upon hearing this, this is the sort of thing that by the end of the day, everyone will realize doesn't really matter or we'll get other news that shows clearly this isn't a problem. The initial analysis, as always, turned out to be exactly wrong in the most important ways. And what we are left with is eh. attorney and legal analyst Leslie McAdoo Gordon on X, formerly Twitter, said, with a deal, you get certainty, which you have none of at a trial. Certainty as to exactly what charges will be on your record as convictions, which is big for trying to save the law license afterwards. In a state court, you also get almost 100% certainty on the sentence too. Not so much in federal court. As you see in this case, the judges almost always give the sentence that was negotiated with the prosecutors. You avoid the legal costs of the trial. You put an end to the emotional toll that the ongoing uncertainty creates, which may be affecting not just you, but loved ones also. Depending on the exact terms of the deal, there may be procedural devices to get the case off your record later. I wonder if that is at play here based on some of the comments the judge made at an earlier hearing. You avoid exposing yourself to conviction on more serious charges where your defense may be thinner or non-existent and for which you'll get a heavier penalty, even if you have a strong defense to the others. Depending on the exact terms of the deal, you may still be able to appeal some issues and thus avoid a costly trial while still being able to challenge the case on a legal ground. This is efficient for everyone and the sentence becomes a default if you lose on appeal. 
It's essentially a cost-benefit analysis every time and in every case. Now, that's a pretty standard interpretation of the process, widely applicable. Will any of that end up applying to Sidney Powell? We don't really know. We're just going to have to see how this progresses in the future. But this is not cause for freakout. Seth Keschel responded to all of this saying, Lying ass mainstream media chooses to highlight the technicality of a guilty plea and ignore the dropping of many felonies that prove their entire case against Trump is total bullshit. This is why I have the utmost respect for talented writers and communicators who risk it and go out on their own away from the collective brain rot. And I think that our community is representative of exactly what he said there in the last part. While all of the media is covering this in the same way, through the only lens they have, that all of this is absolutely real, that Donald Trump is dumb and reckless and irresponsible and definitely committed crimes, regardless of whether no one has been able to prove them to this point, it is still all real and true. And Sidney Powell pleading guilty to these reduced charges, while all of the felonies have been dropped, is actually proof that Donald Trump is guilty and that the whole thing is coming down. But no, it's not. Let's just go ahead and be rational while everyone freaks out. We don't have to join them in their freakouts. We don't have to join them in their analysis and interpretations of events. The same holds true for the speaker race that we are winning. We are getting the ideal outcome. That seems to be what's happening. Although now there is some chance that Jordan might go out for a third vote for whatever reason, apparently the leveraged play of this morning didn't have its effect. And we can apply the same thinking to our interpretation of Israel. The freakout is not warranted. We are being fed countless lies. The meaning we are being convinced to draw from these situations does not make sense. And their conclusions are awful. So we just choose to not go along with any of it. We are capable of interpreting these things on our own and understanding them by ourselves. We don't need the interpretation from authority. The authority is false. The authority is not wise or smart. It's not valid. They don't get things right. And we don't need someone else's interpretation to substitute for ours. Ours is more convincing, which is why more people move in our direction all the time and more people agree with us and then our understanding of these events actually becomes the common understanding of events, and that writes the new reality on its own. They cannot get any of this over on us without our consent, and as always, we just simply refuse to provide it. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. 
out on the range. was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!